0: I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, benvindo. I hope you're having a good Veterans Day. I'd like to give a shout out to my late grandfather, Army Captain William Land, who served in the Pacific in World War II. And to all our veterans, thank you. We're starting today in Palm Beach County, where last month residents say they were once again reminded by the smoke that sugarcane harvest season has begun. That's because the sugarcane is burned to make it easier to harvest. The sugar industry insists the smoke particles from those burns fall within federal safety guidelines. But environmentalists say those guidelines are too lax, and this year a Florida State University study concluded air pollution from the burns can cause premature deaths. As a result, last Friday, protesters from groups like the Stop the Burn campaign and even the South Florida Raging Grannies gathered outside the Palm Beach County Health Department headquarters in West Palm Beach. They demanded that officials start alerting residents affected by the sugarcane burns about the health risks, and they want the powerful sugar industry to start finding greener ways to reap the sweet stuff. Have you been affected at all by the sugarcane burns? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800 9576 You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is WLRN's Palm Beach County reporter, Wilkin Brutus. Also with us is Antigone Barton, investigative reporter for the Palm Beach Post. Welcome to you both. Hey, thank
1: you. Hi, Tim.
0: Hi. Wilkin, let's just start by reminding people why harvesting sugarcane requires burning it.
2: Well, uh, Tim, traditional harvesting requires the process of controlled burning, where sugar farmers essentially light fires in the sugarcane fields to strip the plant down to the stalk. And so it makes the process easier. and. If you're you don't have to be an economist to know that Americans consume right. a lot of white sugar annually. And so the easier the process, the higher the profit for sugarcane farmers. Right.
0: And Antigone, what sort of total acreage are we talking about out there in western Palm Beach County in the Glades area where these so-called controlled burns are going on?
1: Well, uh, this year alone, the the. Uh burning season started last month there've been 973 fires over 52,000 acres of land mm-hmm. uh last year between october and june there were more than 6,000 fires across more than 300,000 acres of land wow and, and this land borders people's homes schools mm-hmm. uh streets that people travel on churches sporting fields
0: and the harvest burn season lasts as Many as eight months, right? Correct. So we're looking from from last month into possibly into into June. Right. Exactly.
1: When I started covering this, it went into early June. Traditionally, it was October to May Uh and all the way through May and into June.
0: Now, the two big companies conducting the burns are U.S. Sugar and Florida Crystals, right? Yes. And they insist these sugarcane burns are safe. Why? What's the basis of their argument?
1: I don't know, Uh, I really don't, because other states and other countries have phased out burning because of findings showing that it contributes to both chronic and life-threatening conditions. Um, The fine matter, uh, the fine particulate that the uh, burning produces uh, settles deep into the lungs and can cause cardiovascular issues as well as breathing issues. Uh, uh, uh fatal ones
0: and, um, and yet and yet the epa though says that its air quality guidelines uh don't see a problem essentially with what u.s sugar and florida crystals are are doing with these burns they say that those burns the the, the air pollution particles that are emitted by those burns uh fall within the epa air quality guidelines is is that is that uh an accurate way of putting it
1: well, the EPA is also looking at changing how they how they measure that air quality. Okay. And, uh, and that's uh, been a proposal that I don't think anything has happened to yet. The problem is that they're looking at 24-hour averages. So, I, you know, whereas uh, the problems caused by the burns are short-term spikes that are intense and have an immediate impact. Mm-hmm. So you could live uh, amongst the cleanest air in the world, but if you're spending time with your mouth around the exhaust pipe of a bus, uh, that's not a healthy thing to do.
0: And just for the record, the, the one restriction Palm Beach County sets is is that the winds, the prevailing winds have to be blowing more or less to the west, away from those residential areas before a burn can start?
1: Uh, no. Okay. Uh, it's It's to blow away from... The wealthier residential area uh-huh. okay. before the burns can start. <laughs> this started in the early 90s as the communities uh, in the Western, again, wider and more affluent. Part of the county grew and people were absolutely outraged to find that there was ash settling on their property and their cars that their throats were burning that they were breathing polluted air right and uh the state responded quickly and said look let's have guidelines that if it's blowing east uh-huh. we don't permit a burn okay. Uh, no, it's it's uh, the fires have a huge impact on residential areas mm-hmm. that are uh, largely occupied by people who are members of racial minorities mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and impoverished.
0: Now, Wilkin, uh, touching on a point that Antigone just made a little while ago, if these controlled burns are as benign as U.S. sugar and the EPA want us to think, why have major sugar producing countries like Brazil stopped using them? Wilkin. We seem to have lost Wilkin Brutus up in Palm Beach. Yes. Are you there, Wilkin?
2: Yes, I'm here. Okay, sorry.
0: <laughs> did, did, were you able to hear the question I asked? Yes, I, okay. I heard
2: the question. I was answering, and I'm not quite sure why it didn't go through. Okay, um, I was I was praising um, Antigone's response, um, and, and it seemed like the EPA certainly received a lot of pressure during the pandemic, uh, because essentially during that time period there's a lot of pressure to really try to solve this issue, right. obviously because of the pandemic. But to answer your your question about Brazil, Brazil is by far one of the uh, world's largest producers of sugar cane, and in the state of Sao Paulo, their largest sugarcane producing state, Mm -hmm. officials had passed a law nearly 20 years ago uh, in 2007, which gradually eliminated um, controlled sugarcane burns by 2017, because just like folks here in the Glades area, here in Palm Beach County, Brazilian residents had uh, complained about respiratory health concerns, Mm -hmm. such as the PM 2.5, the particulate matter. And so as a result, Officials began using mechanical harvesting equipment that essentially cut sugarcane without controlled burns. And okay, that's yeah, yeah and, and I want and I want to, I, know,
0: I, I want to get to those greener methods. Uh, oh yeah, in, definitely in, in a bit. But in fact, following on this, then Wilkin, in fact, earlier this year, as I mentioned earlier, Florida State University released a study that warned that the air pollution particles emitted by these burns can result. In premature deaths, and, and and this was supported by NASA's atmospheric analysis program, right? What what were some of the most important findings of that
2: research? Yeah, quite um, a surprising study, a peer-reviewed FSU study that. Uh, basically showed that a handful of people in that rural region, here in the Glades uh, area, die each year from the various toxins, like we mentioned earlier, PM2.5 being one of the most commonly known one, from the smoke or what low-income families refer to as the black snow. Black snow, um, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so I spoke to the associate professor, Christopher Holmes, who was the lead author of that study, and he said there's between one to six people who die from the fine particulate matter Toxin produced by sugarcane fires each year, and he also said that uh, I wrote the quote down here. Uh, "Quote: Mortality rates from this exposure are almost ten times, 10
0: times higher, right? Higher
2: yes. for residents living next to the fields as opposed to the outside of the immediate area, right?"
0: And Antigone, in your reporting, you spoke with a health clinic worker in Belle Glade who said patients are coming in now with smoke-related asthma.
1: Uh, that's a long standing situation. Uh-huh. I actually spoke to someone at the protest who said that she became involved when she was working in an urgent care and saw people stocking up on their asthma medicine as burn season began, the way mm-hmm. maybe other people stock up on batteries before hurricane right. season. But our own reporting, our Black Snow Project, uh, which uh, my colleague, my former colleague, Lulu Ramadan, did with uh, ProPublica documented, uh, as the health department has in the past, that visits to clinics rise uh, with breathing complaints during Mm -hmm. uh, during burns. So that's a long standing situation.
0: I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the health risks of the sugarcane harvest burns that just started in Palm Beach County. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So, given all these new findings about the air pollution produced by these sugarcane burns, are we now seeing a more assertive movement against them? Antigone, you were at last Friday's protest at the Palm Beach County Health Department What were the protesters from organizations like Stop the Burn campaign? What were they demanding for the most part?
1: Well, uh, they positioned themselves outside the health department because they were saying that the uh, the agency's silence is deafening in the face of evidence that the smoke is harmful Uh, about a week or so before the protest. Uh, And they were already calling for the health department to issue alerts when there are burns. Uh, A couple weeks before, uh, the health department issued an alert because smoke from the Canadian wildfires was uh, hanging over southern Florida, and they said, geez, if you've got uh, breathing problems, stay indoors. So why not a warning for the people who are living with a blazing fire in their backyard? that research has right. shown yeah. is life-threatening. So La- that was the main thing they were, but it also attracted a wider, uh, it's attracting a wider range of people because it's a social justice issue. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the the uh, double standard I was referring to earlier, where if you live in a white wealthy neighborhood, the, they don't burn that day, mm-hmm. the, the wind is blowing east, uh, is, yeah. is classic environmental racism. Uh,
0: now, they they also want permitting to keep the burns at least 27 miles away from residential areas. That's that I, I that that's another one of their planks right um, mm-hmm. now. But as I said, they also want the sugar companies to use greener methods to harvest sugarcane. Um, so I want to ask both of you. Let me start with you, Wilkin, because you started to mention this when we were talking about Brazil. Sure. Um, What are these greener methods that that uh, the protesters are saying the government and the industry should be focusing on now so that they can phase out the burns here?
2: Yeah, well, well in Brazil, uh, they use mechanical harvesting machines uh, to essentially strip the the sugar stock from uh, from the material. And, and also, it's a win win for companies in Brazil, Uh the, the companies there make a profit off of repurposing sugarcane leaves or what folks call waste and ah. using it to generate renewable energy. So the mm-hmm. industry standard there is is seen as a win win.
0: Right. And, yeah. no, that's that that's a, a, a antiquity. Are you also hearing other of other sort of green methods to replace the sugarcane burns that could be used?
1: It is as Wilkin describes, and and where it's instituted, uh, the recycling uh, actually helps build jobs. So one of the sugar companies' big arguments is if they change how they do things, they'll lose money, and then right. people lose their jobs. And and it creates jobs. Mm-hmm.
0: We have a uh, Ray from Miami on the line. Uh, wants to talk about how you know how are the sh- you know the. The sugar companies responding to these reports. Ray, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. You're on the air.
3: Thank you very much for taking my call. Sure. Um, In light of the fact of all these reputable uh, reports from FIU, backed by NASA, uh, and the constant proving of what's going on there, what is in fact being done specifically, both by the government agencies, state, local, and even national, and what are the sugar refinery companies? Um, going to be doing about this instead of just
0: saying that they comply with EPA um, pollution levels. Right. And we need a, 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 a good point, uh, uh, Ray. But we need to we need to clarify that the study was from Florida State University. My uh, apologies. Yeah. No, no problem. But Wilkin, would you like to uh, yeah, respond to that?
2: Absolutely. That, that's a great question. Uh, so last year, Florida residents in the region dropped a class action lawsuit that claimed, obviously, what we're talking about here, control sugarcane burns, reduce property values and her air quality. And U.S. sugar spokesperson had always said complaints about sugarcane burning were without merit because sugar companies had been operating under federal clean air regulations based on the measurements, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have to understand that in 2021, there was a bill signed into office that essentially shields farmers from, quote, nuisance lawsuits, which has now made it harder to sue sugar farmers. And it discourages lawsuits. Right. Uh, it, it it basically expanded the state's uh, right to farm law. Well, which th- th- that's what it's approved. called, the
0: Right to Farm Act, which protects right. air particle emissions from agricultural burns like these from lawsuits. And right. I wanted to ask both of you, uh, Antigone, let me start with you. How big an obstacle is that in terms of the ability to pressure the government and the industry to make um, some of these concessions we've been talking about?
1: Well, it's an obstacle to suing, and uh, it certainly, which removes an incentive for the sugar companies to avoid being sued, uh, having taken care of that through legislation. But it adds to the pressure on on regulatory agencies to take meaningful action, Uh, So, Mm -hmm. because it is in their hands now. And in fact, many years ago, residents of the Glades with former governor uh, Claude Kirk sued. The sugar industry for uh polluting effects of its activities and the florida supreme court said no you don't have a right to sue because that's for the regulatory agencies to take care of so in a way this this legislation just adds to the uh, the obligation of the government to regulate the industry
0: Mm -hmm.
2: uh
1: safely
0: wilkin would you agree with that assessment
2: Oh, absolutely. And and I want to add on to what she's talking about in terms of the sort of class differences in the Glades region versus eastern communities like Royal Palm, Wellington. Uh, these are the communities in the eastern part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, U.S. sugar companies are by far one of the most powerful industries in the region. Right. And, but also one, of the most,
0: also one of the most economically important to Florida, too, right?
2: Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's the largest employers, particularly in the Glades region. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a a recent report last year uh, from the Agricultural uh, and Food Policy Center at Texas A&M University that showed that um, the the industry supports more than 19,000 jobs and contributes to nearly 5 billion annuities. So that's a lot of... Uh, political clout that it's holding, right. which it makes it difficult for folks, for residents in the in the Glades area to actually uh, mm-hmm. voice their concerns.
0: Wilkin will have to leave it there, unfortunately, for time. Wilkin Brutus is WLRN's Palm Beach County reporter. Antigone Barton is an investigative reporter with the Palm Beach Post. Thanks very much to you both.
2: Thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure.
0: Still to come, what happens if the city beautiful annexes a trailer park? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. For years, Coral Gables, also known as the City Beautiful for its impeccably manicured affluence, has been trying to annex an unincorporated area of its northern off its northern border called Little Gables. Little Gables is home to a trailer park for dozens of low-income families. In the past year, they in, oh, I'm sorry, in the past they have resisted annexation by Coral Gables because they fear it would result in their eviction if not homelessness, given how impossible it's become to find affordable housing in Miami-Dade County. But last month, Coral Gables finally secured enough petition signatures in Little Gables to start the annexation process, which will first require county permission. Coral Gables now says it would not remove the trailer park, even though it violates Coral Gables' notoriously restrictive zoning codes and it insists the deal would be good for Little Gables in terms of services. Still, many Little Gables residents fear annexation will eventually lead to their displacement in Miami-Dade's hostile real estate universe. Should they be concerned, especially given how erratic Coral Gables government has become lately? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio is Tess Risky. She's done some great reporting on this story for the Miami Herald. Tess, how are you today?
3: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, no, great to have you here. I want to cut to the chase here and ask, why does a famously boutique city like Coral Gables want to annex a relatively low-income community like Little Gables? What What would both gain from this?
3: Well, one of the main arguments for annexation is that it would increase revenue for the city of Coral Gables.
0: To the tune of about $4 million, I think, as you reported? Within
3: five years. Within five years. That's just a projection for now, but it could, with um, property taxes and other fees, it could bring up um, revenues for the city. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, Little Gables, as the mayor of Coral Gables has pointed out, he called it... um, it's no longer a little sleepy enclave anymore. He described how a home, you know, last year had sold for 2.2 million dollars. So okay, right. there is, you know, there are changes happening that we're seeing, you know, in real estate markets all over. In so being right next door to
0: Coral Gables has its economic advantages in that sense. Right. Right. Now that, that 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 makes sense. Um, now you just mentioned that it would it would improve the tax revenue base for Coral Gables. What about this argument, though, that it would mean better services and things of that nature for Little Gables?
3: Well, one of the main arguments on that front involves public safety and 911 response times. Um, Currently in Little Gables, Uh, Miami-Dade Police and Miami-Dade Fire Rescue are supposed to respond there. But it's, you know, it's an enclave that's surrounded on three sides by Coral Gables and then one side by Miami. So bringing it into Coral Gables would allow Coral Gables Police and Fire to respond. However, there's some dispute about how much that would improve response times.
0: Now, what sort of housing predominates there? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how Little Gables is home to a, a particularly large trailer park. Um... And the, the, the housing that, that, that tends to be there is is not <laughs> the, the $2.2 million home you just, just mentioned, I think, is the exception, not the rule. Uh, is that correct?
3: Yeah, there's a lot mm-hmm. of um, single family homes right. mm-hmm. um, besides the trailer park. So um, I think some smaller homes, um, but yeah, just mostly single family.
0: Mm-hmm. And now that we see Coral Gables able to secure just enough petition signatures inside Little Gables to get the annexation process going. That's uh, in contrast to what happened in 2019 when Coral Gables first tried this and Little Gables residents balked. What do you think has changed? Why are Little Gables residents perhaps more amenable to annexation now?
3: Well, It's actually not quite as far along as it had gotten last time. All that they've done now, they've got the 20% threshold for the petition signatures, Mm -hmm. and there's still more steps to even get to the point they were at last time. Um, And they did pass the threshold by about two dozen signatures, I want to be clear. Um, But... I think the city of Coral Gables has made some changes to its approach that we can get to that have made this a more um, palatable proposition.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and we will get to those, but but first I just uh, wanna remind folks what the process entails now, starting with getting permission for the annexation from Miami-Dade County, right?
3: Yes, there's a few steps that need to happen. The city commission in Coral Gables needs to um, allow the process to proceed so they can submit an application to Miami-Dade County, who then has to allow the residents of Little Gables to have a referendum Mm -hmm. and have majority approval for annexation to take place.
0: Okay. Now, getting back to the discussion of why perhaps Little Gables residents uh, do seem maybe a little more uh, amenable. Uh, accepting of this plan for annexation. Coral Gables is now insisting this time that it won't try to eliminate the trailer park, for example, even though Coral Gables zoning codes prohibit that that sort of housing. They say they'll grandfather it in. What exactly does that mean?
3: So, yes, as you said, in Coral Gables, trailer parks are not allowed. And right. um, at this specific site, the city is saying it will allow that trailer park to stay in that instance, um, and it will not follow its previous plan in 2019, which was to raise the trailer park and redevelop
0: it. Mm-hmm. Okay, that that that's a good clarification. Um, and Miami-Dade County commissioners, who four years ago... We're not very happy with how Coral Gables was going to approach this. Now commissioners like Kevin Cabrera, who is is quite an advocate for uh, reforming affordable housing in Miami-Dade County, uh, they say they'll um, they'll hold Coral Gables to this pledge to uh, proceed in in what Cabrera calls a more humane way toward, in particularly the lower income residents is that is that an accurate way of putting it
3: right um yeah so miami-dade commissioner kevin cabrera had said that his understanding from the mayor of coral gables and the city manager is that the trailer park will not be you know it won't be kicked out basically they'll be allowed to stay um his understanding is also that they do not want to find people out of living there in other words code enforcement shouldn't yeah. be coming in and finding the residents of the trailer park to the point where they can no longer stay. So that is his impression as the county commissioner, mm-hmm. but there are some concerns about the com-
0: that. The county commissioner whose district includes yes. Little Gables. and
1: he's
3: a new commissioner too. So right. the last attempt, it was a different commissioner.
0: Right. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Coral Gables' efforts to annex Little Gables and its trailer park residents. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. We have Ian on the line from Coral Gables. Uh, Ian, what is your uh, what are your thoughts about this? Hi. Hi. Um...
4: I don't think we'll be able to get track record recently, and I just want to read the definition of a Ponzi scheme from Strong Towns, which is an advocacy group for uh, basically improving the housing. A Ponzi scheme requires a never-ending stream of new investors to repay old ones. Um,
0: okay, so I, so Ian, are you, you're suggesting that there's some sort of Ponzi scheme nature to to this annexation plan? I'm I'm a little uh, could could you clarify that for us a little bit.
4: Gladly. I think that um, the city needs new investments uh, because they don't want to take out more bonds. They don't want to raise taxes. And if you imagine a triangle of good services, low density, and low taxes, it's impossible to have all three. So the only way to you know, keep the budget afloat is to just keep growing.
0: That, okay, now that, that that is an interesting point that you make there at the end there, Ian. And, and uh, Tess, I'd like to... I mean, is that... Is, is, is it almost, you had mentioned earlier when we spoke that, that there's this feeling that Miami-Dade County is trying to get more cities like Coral Gables to annex more unincorporated areas. If that's true, what is the rationale behind it?
3: I don't fully know the details. I just know that some of the commissioners in Coral Gables have said that there is a desire from Miami-Dade County to square off some of these boundaries of these little enclaves that exist in the, in the county.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and and could it be that cities like Coral Gables are perhaps more enthusiastic about pursuing that now because it does mean more growth, more tax revenue, et cetera, it's as we were discussing earlier?
3: Yeah, it's definitely possible somewhere like Miami-Dade County where you're so limited in land. the um, it's 205 acres in Little Gables, which is a lot of space in, you know, sort of the urban core of the Miami area. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely possible. No, and
0: I should remind our listeners, I think that a lot of that rationale is behind Hialeah's effort earlier this year to annex the Brownsville area adjacent to it, uh, which in the end didn't work out. But it's just another example, I think, of this trend that, that we are seeing. So let's get back to Coral Gables pledging not to evict these Little Gable residents uh, once annexation happens, if it does happen. And yet, Tess, you spoke with several Little Gables residents who fear that things will happen that will eventually drive them out of their properties. What are those fears? You just mentioned the possibility of code fines in a a city like Coral Gables that is notorious for codes.
3: Right. Code enforcement um, is a concern for some of the residents, um, whether there would be um, issues with their particular trailer that they are unable to afford to fix, or the trailer park overall that maybe the owners decide is not worth it to invest Mm -hmm. in. Um, And it's not just that the city has stricter rules in and of itself, it's also just the ratio of code enforcement officers to the population. So instead of Miami-Dade County code enforcement, which has a huge area, um, yeah. it's, you, it's, Coral Gables is a much smaller place, so mm-hmm. it's gonna have more eyes on the trailer park and perhaps higher level of scrutiny because of that. And
0: I, 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 I remember you brought up in your reporting, for example, one of the questions is, well, will the code that has to do with the color of the house that I, you know, if, I have, if I'm living in a trailer park in, in Little Gables now, if annexation happens, do I have to paint, <laughs> repaint my, my home to a certain color to, to meet the code? Can I park a pickup truck? for example, in, in front of my property?
3: Well, a lot of those factors, I think, will also be grandfathered in. It's okay. The details are a little murky, but, mm-hmm. you know, the city has brought up the example of chain-link fences, um, which aren't allowed in Coral Gables, but if annexed, they're not going to go and tell everyone you have to get rid of your chain-link fence. They're going to say, you once you replace your fence, it has mm-hmm. to be within following our rules. So... You know, it might not be an overnight thing, um, but there's, there's, there's concerns about that.
0: What about the prospects of heavier taxation that Little Gables residents might be facing as a result of annexation? Which, again, if you're a lower income family, that's another burden that could lead to you being displaced.
3: Yeah, that's a possibility, Um, especially for the trailer park residents. There is a fear that um, higher property taxes could raise the rent because they they typically own the physical trailer, but they rent the plot of land that it's on. And so they could be priced out um, because of that as well.
0: And that then brings us to the owner of the trailer park property, for example, Titan Development. Um, You and I were talking earlier about (laughs) the the possibility that once Little Gables is annexed, that area then takes on that very affluent Coral Gables cachet. That can lead a a, a development company like Titan, who owns a property like the trailer park, to feel a real urge, a real temptation to sell that property, but yet you say Titan Development is saying that's not gonna happen?
3: Right, so the the branding of Coral Gables could potentially you know increase its value in the eyes of of a developer you know it's a possibility the owners have I would say more left the door open of what could happen in the future um there isn't a, a clear commitment from them about what exactly the future could be if mm-hmm. annexation happens they seem sensitive to the needs of the trailer park residents but I wouldn't say there's a clear definitive answer on that
0: mm-hmm. but let's say um Hypothetically, that some of these Little Gables residents' fears are borne out and they find themselves having to look for housing elsewhere. How hard would it be for those families to find comparable, affordable homes in Miami-Dade's current climate? I mean, would, would, would the county step in to assist them, for example?
3: The county could. That's something Kevin Cabrera and I spoke about mm-hmm. was coming up with options for them if that happens. But um, the residents I spoke to, their rent was around 650 to $850 a month. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure people listening can imagine that's not an easy um, amount to find um, to rent a place for in Miami-Dade County. Um, one of the residents I spoke to, he is a, f- a father with um two children and he's married. So there's four of them. And he said he's struggled to find landlords that will rent anything smaller than a two bedroom to them, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, especially pricey around here. So um, there's a big question mark for that. But there does seem to be concern from the county commission about what the outcome would be for them and to try to address Mm -hmm. those needs ahead of time.
0: Now, finally, I just wanted to ask you about the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, Coral Gable City government is not looking... All that functional these days. There's a big political Donnybrook going on between Mayor Vince Lago and the city commission. Things look kind of uncharacteristically dysfunctional for Coral Gables, as a matter of fact. If you're a Little Gables residence watching this play out, should you also be concerned about that current defun- dysfunction <laughs> inside Coral Gables city government um, in any way, shape or form?
3: Well, that's that's an interesting question. Um, one, So yeah, there is sort of a split. It's a five-member commission. And since right. the election in April, there's sort of been a split on that with a, an incumbent commissioner who's kind of become a swing vote, um, Kirk Menendez. One could say that maybe the city just needs to sort of even out after the election and have some time for things to settle down. But right. yeah, currently there is a, a lot of um, contention, I would say, on the city commission that um, is unique, I think, in Coral Gables.
0: Well, we'll stay tuned. Tessa Risky covers Coral Gables and Miami for the Miami Herald. Tess, many thanks.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Still to come, Who should get the estimated $20 billion loot from that sunken ship off Columbia? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. South Florida has a long history of ocean treasure hunters. Half a century ago, the late Mel Fisher, who discovered the ship Antocha, he turned the work of salvaging riches from sunken ships off the Keys and other coasts into a very lucrative gig. South Florida also has a large Colombian community, so it caught our eye last week when Colombia announced it will now recover the Spanish ship San Jose that was sunk near Cartagena in 1708. It was carrying an estimated $20 billion worth of gold, emeralds, and silver. One big question is whether Columbia is obligated to split those spoils with the Florida-based salvage firm that first discovered the San Jose some 40 years ago. But here's another question. Should the history these ships offer us be considered as valuable as the loot they contain? Should we and our governments make them objects of research instead of plunder? What are your thoughts? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is a top marine archaeologist in Florida, Chuck Mead. He directs the Lighthouse Archaeological Maritime Program, or LAMP, At the Lighthouse and Maritime Museum in St. Augustine, Florida, which was founded in 1565 by the Spaniards who sailed in a lot of those ships that are now at the bottom of the sea. Chuck, thanks for joining us.
4: Uh, Thank you, Tim. It's great to be here.
0: I mentioned Mel Fisher at the outset and how he made sunken ship treasure hunting famous, especially after he hauled almost half a billion dollars out of that Spanish galleon Atocha off the Florida Keys. But with the San Jose, Chuck, we're talking about what experts are calling the holy grail of sunken ships, potentially $20 billion. Is this likely to help or hurt the mission of exploring these sunken ships around the world?
4: Uh, Well, I'd I'd have to say uh, usually when you have uh, treasure on a ship, that tends to complicate things and it tends to complicate uh, the, the research uh, that, yeah. of course, we as ar- archaeologists are most interested in with these wrecks.
0: As, as we pointed out, the San Jose sank off Cartagena, Colombia in 1708 uh, after being uh, shot down, essentially, by the British Navy, More than, and it's more than 3,000 feet below the Caribbean surface. Are you surprised, though, at how remarkably well preserved photos of this ship indicate that it is?
4: Uh, the the photography I I have seen is just fabulous now uh I'm I guess I'd say I'm in, impressed but not necessarily uh surprised uh because at, at those depths uh, nobody has ever, you know, uh, uh, molested the wreck, messed with the wreck, stolen anything. So mm-hmm. it should be a pretty pristine time capsule, which, of course, is what gives it a lot of archaeological value.
0: And for, for perspective, do you remember how deep the Titanic is, is, is sunk, for example?
4: Uh, the Titanic is, uh, I think, a, a bit deeper than that. Okay. Uh, but uh, but this is pretty deep. I mean, this is like 600 meters, uh, 3,000 feet. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's obviously way too deep for any any human to dive to. So it all has to be done uh, with uh, re- remotely operated vehicles, kind of underwater drones.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, the San Jose off Colombia was apparently carrying 200 tons of silver. 11 million gold coins and a large cache of emeralds back to Spain to help fund the wars of succession in Europe at that time. Recovering all that is, of course, the big reason Colombian President Gustavo Petro now wants to raise the ship back up. But as a maritime archaeologist, what do you urge governments like Colombia or what would you urge President Petro now to do with all those riches once they are brought back up?
4: Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, our, we can learn a lot from these shipwrecks and, uh, you can learn a lot if you use proper accepted.
0: We seem to have lost Chuck, basically you? if you
4: do good science. Are, are you there?
0: Yeah. Could you repeat what you were just saying? We lost you there for, uh, for a couple seconds.
4: Sorry. Sorry. Uh, what, what I was saying is that, uh, you know, archaeology, uh, you know, if you're using good scientific practices, you can learn a lot about a shipwreck. You can learn a lot about that time period that it represents. Uh, if you think about it, a ship is like a floating city. You know, there were, I, I know there were uh, 600 hands lost mm-hmm. on that ship, uh, which of course makes it a, a war grave exactly. as well yeah. as a, a, a site that Uh, from the archaeologist's perspective, should really be studied uh, so that we, uh, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing like a shipwreck, Uh, you know, again, it's a time capsule, right? So it's a moment frozen in time, and it appears that everything is well preserved. So really the best, you know, the best way to deal from it is to do good archaeology, to keep the collection intact instead of selling things off to the highest bidder, uh, because it is just a unique, a unique, uh, circumstance that we have such a well preserved. You,
0: you mentioned that a, Gumbian, a government like Colombia should be looking at the museum potential for this, that could itself generate a lot of of income down the road. No.
4: Well, certainly, and that's been uh, that's been demonstrated uh, by studies that uh, you know if you, if you sell a bunch of this treasure uh, off, of course, you immediately have uh, revenue that comes from that. Mm-hmm. But if you create a museum. And I can assure you, if you had a museum and you walked in and you had this huge gallery uh, with this, you know, a massive amount of material from this shipwreck, something that would just drop your jaw uh, in the numbers that we're talking about, uh, that will create revenue for decades and centuries to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a sustainable way to you know, deal with an archaeological site like this, which uh, ensures that it will be well studied. And something that can be educational for the people of Columbia and and bring in revenue for the people of Colombia for the long term. So certainly from the archaeologist's point of view, mm-hmm. uh, if you okay. sell artifacts, you're, you're selling away your data. You're selling away evidence. Uh, you know, if you if you uh, went to a, a, a police station to try to solve a really cold case and you went into the uh, the evidence locker and it was empty with a little note that said, oh, sorry, we had to sell this uh, so that we could buy new uh, patrol cars for everybody. Right. Well, you wouldn't be able to solve that case. So, you know, keeping the collection of artifacts intact so they can be studied is something that's really important for archaeologists. But there will
0: be a lot of temptation on the part of a government to want to use that $20 billion for things like social programs, etc. But 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 again, you, you, you do raise a good point that in the long term they could actually make uh, more revenue uh, out of that for, for the country. But of course, in reality... Uh, When when we're talking about this kind of treasure, there's there's going to be a fight over who should get it. And as I mentioned, a Florida-based ocean salvaging company called Sea Search Armada claims that it discovered the San Jose's whereabouts for Colombia back in the 1980s, and it's now suing Colombia for $17 billion of that ship's wealth. How should claims be dealt with in situations like this, Chuck? I mean, the Colombian Supreme Court recently suggested a 50-50 split between the government and sea search but how should claims be dealt with in situations like this? do Do maritime laws, for example, give us any guidance at all?
4: Well, uh, it, it's it's it, it got complicated quickly. Like I said, when there's treasure involved, that happens. And, and uh, uh, usually the person who makes the most money uh, when a shipwreck with treasure is found are the lawyers. Right. That's kind of uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it a piece of wisdom yeah. that tends tends to hold true.
0: Uh-huh.
4: Uh, now, it's it, it's pretty clear in this case under international maritime law. Uh, this this ship, San Jose, was a naval vessel. It, it it belonged to the King of Spain. Right. It was a military vessel, and so uh, that military vessel belongs to Spain, and everything that was on board, just like right. it did when it in seventeen oh eight.
0: But the fact that it was uh, found so, though in the sovereign waters of Colombia does that legally complicate that scenario you're describing?
4: Well, uh, it. It, it's, it, you know, the reality of it is uh, it has become legally complicated. I, I can assure you, if this was a U.S. Navy vessel, uh, the United States government would put an immediate stop to any uh, salvage of one of our vessels. Uh, the mm-hmm. United States considers, and this has been enshrined in in U.S. law, recognizing what has been longstanding international law, uh, the Sunken Military Craft Act of 2004. Uh, but the U.S. recognizes that any of our uh, U.S. vessels, uh, naval vessels that have wrecked anywhere, remain property of the United States, mm-hmm. and we also uh, recognize any other navy uh, retains ownership of their vessels. And right. again, this was mm-hmm. this was a war grave. But, you know, there were 600 Spanish sailors who perished on this, right? And so it's pretty clear from international law uh, that this, you know, should belong to Spain. Uh, you know, and there had certainly been precedent in, in U.S. courts right now in Did- Colombian court. Uh, who knows? It's a different mm. uh, a different country. Uh, and right. I'm sure I know Spain has put in a claim and probably will try to negotiate through the United mm-hmm. Nations uh, uh towards towards that end. And, All
0: right. and I would also Chuck say Chuck, is, uh, Chuck I'm sorry, I just I have to cut in here and do the FCC thing. Sure. I'm Tim Paget. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the sunken ship San Jose off of Colombia and who should get the 20 billion dollars in riches it holds. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576 or tweet us at WLRN. Chuck, I want to point out that you grew up in Atlantic Beach on Florida's North Atlantic coast. And you say that's where you became fascinated with sunken ships. You call them historical puzzles. When you go out and explore and salvage a shipwreck, what are the most important things you're looking for and paying attention to?
4: Oh, that's a great question. Uh, Really, we're we're trying to look... I mean, we're looking at every little detail we can possibly recover, so we are very meticulous uh, very careful when we uh, when we excavate, when we dig into the seafloor, we're taking measurements, uh, elevation measurements of how deep uh, we have excavated because we may be trying to compare the artifacts we found at one level uh, under the sand with artifacts that we found at another level. And if we are in a well-preserved ship, we, the ship may be compartmentalized, uh, and that can tell you a lot. You know, there have mm-hmm. been shipwrecks uh, like San Jose, uh that uh you know military vessels there's a lot often a lot of good documentary evidence so there are some ships that have been excavated uh where you could identify where an individual's cabin was you know where the ship, ship surgeon was or the the bosun right. uh, was So uh, when you when you compare that kind of historical record uh with very careful archaeological excavation it's amazing what you can learn right and of course uh, we've had a lot of treasure hunting in Florida, uh, certainly in South Florida, on the on the Treasure Coast, and in in the Upper Keys, as uh, many of your uh, listeners know, with the 1733 shipwrecks down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, when treasure hunters dig, it's it's Quite different than the way uh, that we dig. Uh, typically, instead mm-hmm. of using a handheld dredge like we do to very carefully remove sand, yeah. uh, they they'll blast a hole in the seafloor using the propeller wash from uh, uh, from their their boats. Right, uh, and moves a lot of sand, but it also mm-hmm. it, you lose a lot of evidence. You lose a lot of information
0: uh, that way. Chuck, in just the minute we have left, I want to end by pointing out there are an estimated three million or so sunken shipwrecks still around the world. So we're going to keep seeing these kinds of dramas unfold in the, in the future. But I wanted to ask you, how do we change then the culture surrounding sunken ships like the San Jose? I mean, Mel Fisher didn't become a millionaire celebrity all those years ago by uncovering the history the Atocha had in its hull. It was because of the 40 tons of gold and silver he found in it. How do we change the mentality, the culture behind how we approach these sunken ships? And In just about the 30 seconds we have left.
4: Sure, sure. Well, Mel Fisher knew a thing about showmanship, and I think it's good if uh, archaeologists and scientists can learn from that aspect, uh, because we need to teach people. We need to let people know why these ships are important, how much we can learn from these ships, right. uh, and that's, that's the best way to keep them preserved uh, well, into the future.
0: Well, thanks. Chuck Mead is a maritime archaeologist who directs the Lighthouse Archaeological Maritime Program, or LAMP, up in St. Augustine, Florida. Chuck, many thanks.
4: Uh, You are most welcome. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.
0: Take care. Finally on the Roundup, when we mention religious communities in South Florida, we usually think of Christians, Jews, and Muslims. But we also have a large Hindu community here, and this weekend marks the start of one of its most important sacred observances, the five-day autumn festival known as Diwali. Sri Lakshmi, Sri Mahalakshmi, If you stop by a puja or service at any of the beautiful Hindu temples in our area, you'll hear mantras like this one to Lakshmi, the goddess of peace, prosperity and enlightenment, among other virtues. Lakshmi plays a prominent role in Diwali because it is above all a celebration of lights, of light-defeating darkness in our world and our lives. Those lights, including fireworks, will be prominent at sites like the South Florida Hindu Temple in Southwest Ranches in Broward County. It starts the Diwali celebration tomorrow evening with a puja at 7 p.m. Other Indian-based faith communities, including Jains and Sikhs, also celebrate Diwali, and we want to wish them all Shush Diwali. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and our show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answered the phones. I'm Tim Padgett. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi Obrigado WLRN, Public Media.